We're back in Acts. Thank you so much to Jim Hill last week um, for coming in and re-kicking us off into the end of 2020 and into the book of Acts. We've got maps. What is a new year like without a good map? And so we decided to get some maps going. And so here we go. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 19, is where we will begin. Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 19. And as as is our custom, if you would, wherever you are and however you're looking at your Bible, if you would stand in honor of God's word as we read this passage. Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. This is God's word. Amen and amen. You may take a seat. You know, as we are working through the book of Acts, up until this point, we, we originally started in Jerusalem, and we saw so much happening in Jerusalem. In Acts 1.8, it says, you will be my witnesses. It kind of gives us this, uh, this, this layout of the book. You will be my testifiers, my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And what we saw in the book of Acts is chapters 1 through 8 is largely about how the disciples were testifiers about Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection. They testified about that, chapters 1 through 8, in Jerusalem. We then, chapters 9 through 12, move us to how they testify, particularly Philip and Peter, they testify about Jesus in Judea and Samaria. And now we're in a portion of the book that Jim kicked off last week and that we're going to be in for quite a while, up until chapter 28, where you will see the disciples, particularly Paul and Barnabas, and then particularly the Apostle Paul, who will be a testifier about Jesus in the uttermost parts of the earth, all the areas outside of Israel. And so today we are continuing on as we look at what we know as and what is commonly called the first missionary journey. This might not have been the first time Paul had preached the gospel in other lands, but in the book of Acts, this is the first time where we see Paul going out, and and Barnabas for that matter, going out into the uttermost parts of the earth. The book will end in 
the city of Rome because Rome is as, if you can make it to Rome there, you, like, kind of like New York, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. It was the largest city of the day. It was the hub of the Western world at the time. All roads led to Rome. If you could get to Rome, it meant that you had gotten to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, in our passage and what we're going to look at, I really, what I, what I want to look at is this whole journey takes two chapters in the book of Acts. We only read the last part, kind of the, um, one of the most grim parts. The apostle Paul gets stoned. They think he's going to, he's dead. They drag him out of the city. But as he comes back and as they go back and they preach to the rest of, they go back through the cities that they had visited, they come home to Antioch where they had been sent out. And as we remember this idea of Antioch, Antioch is this innovative place. It's this place where they first preached the gospel to Gentiles and where the disciples were first called Christians. And they called them Christians because they didn't know what else to call them. This church was so innovative that it broke all the barriers that you might expect of what a, a Jewish synagogue might look like. And you had, these, you had these Jews, but they hung out with Gentiles, and they ate with Gentiles, and you had, you had Gentiles, but they weren't pagans. And so what do we call them? We have to call them something we don't have a word for. It. We're going to make up a word for who these people are. They're that innovative. They stood out that much in society that they had to make up a new word to describe them. I think it is interesting for us here at Taft Avenue Community Church, sometimes I wonder if, if our church over the years has become a little invisible to our community. And I wonder what, like you think about what would it take for the community to be like, what do we even call those people? Like that, that innovative, that standing out that much. And that's what we have in the, in, the, in the Antioch church. And they have sent out Barnabas and Saul to preach and at the end of this passage, in 13.1, they send them out, but in 14.28, they come back. And this is what it says. It says, they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. They had been sent out, they're returning. And then in verse 27, when they arrived, they gathered the church together and they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. It says that they gave a report to this innovative church, this innovative group in Antioch. They gave a report about what had been done. And this morning, I just, I have this curiosity. I wonder, I, if we were there, if you and I were there, when Paul and Barnabas came back to Antioch, what would this report have sounded like? What would they have said? What would have been their tone? And what I want to do this morning is I just want to reflect on this in light of where we are. We're in a very interesting spot. We're in a very disrupted place in our society. We're in a very disrupted place at church. I mean, if you would have told me when I started my ministry career that, that I'd be spending a whole year standing on a stage preaching to an empty room to a camera, I would have been like, look, I'm not a televangelist, right? But now, now I guess I am. I, I mean, we're, we're here and it is completely disrupted. And this church in Antioch, they had been disruptors. They had been part of a disrupted community. And so what I want to ask is, what did this report sound like? And what would have Paul's tone been after this report? This trip, this first missionary journey that we have on the, on the map here, that begins, it begins over here in Antioch. Jim talked about the ministry on Cyprus, then up here 
to Italia, all the way to Pisidian Antioch, and then Iconium, Lister, Derby, and then back around. That's the first missionary journey. But this trip has always been a point of fascination for me. Um, as I've taught this book, as I've taught the book of Acts at, at not only Biola University, but at Fuller Seminary, as I've done my New Testament intro classes, the first missionary journey, I think, is a really interesting uh, case study in how the church operates in innovation. In other words, the church, I think a lot of times we think about the church, and maybe you're like this if you're like me, when you read your Bibles, you tend to think, especially the book of Acts, it's like, well, the, they figured it out, and they went here, and they had victory, and then they went over here, and they had victory. Even though they were persecuted, they still were faithful, and they, they just kept, you, as you look at the progress of the gospel, if you're like me, you tend to think it's like this. It just keeps going up and up and up, and they're never like, they're never surprised, or they're never like trying to figure it out, and I think the first missionary journey, for me, is this really interesting case where I think you see them trying to figure out, figure it out while they're on the trip. And I think this is something that we want to embrace, even as a church, that we're in a place where we're figuring it out as we go as well. That this is not always tried and true methodologies. Like, I got news for you. Everything has changed. 20, after 2020, everything has changed for church. And the tried and true methods of the past are not necessarily going to be the ways forward. It's going to be a path of innovation. And a path of innovation is sometimes fraught with risk and failure. And we see all of that on this particular journey. They gave a report. I wonder what that report would have sounded like. I think they would have said this. So here's, here's the first thing that I think we would have heard about this. That God opened doors. That God opened doors. If you look at Acts chapter 13, um, you, what you'll see, probably the biggest door that was opened happens right here at Pathos. Right here. They start in Antioch, way on the other side, right here in Paphos, and that is when they meet a man named Sergius Paulus. Sergius Paulus was the proconsul. What's interesting is if you, if you notice the direction, I'm going to move this a little bit forward. See, we're, a new year means that we are, and innovation means that we have maps, right? And I know you're very excited about that. But if you look at this, they're coming from Antioch, and they're coming to the end of Cyprus. They're going from east to west, now, their next move is they're going to go up to Antioch. They actually don't even mention stopping at this major port. They just make a beeline for this city up here, and you wonder why. And probably the answer is this, that this man, Sergius Paulus, who they meet here on Cyprus and Paphos, archaeologists have actually dug up inscriptions of Sergius Paulus up here in Antioch that Sergius Paulus's proconsul was a landowner up here in Antioch and was probably a very influential man, and his proconsulship not only extended from Cyprus, but all the way up here into, and this is Galatia up in this region as well, um, but that is the largest open door that they get, and probably what takes place is that this proconsul probably encouraged Paul and Barnabas to travel up to Pisidian Antioch, 
and may have even written, we imagine that he probably, if he would have encouraged them, he might have even given them a letter of recommendation to go up to Pisidian Antioch. And Sergius Paulus believes here, he's a believer, and so he sends them up to his homeland to give the gospel to the people of his homeland. It's probably the largest, the biggest open door of this first journey. And so they go up, they go all the way up to Antioch. And so uh, it's notable that Paul and Barnabas appear intent on arriving there. They don't, like I said, they don't mention the port city. They just kind of blow through Perga and they end up in Antioch. And then they don't even go any further than that. They could have gone over here. This is where Colossae is and Laodicea is over here. And they decide to go back this direction. So there's a number of things that, that happen on this journey of open doors that we don't exactly know about, but that we can guess based on this. And Sergius Paulus is probably the best evidence we have that this open door, that he has opened a door of ministry through this Gentile Roman leader in Cyprus. And we're going to see that there are other places where God opens a door. But this is a really interesting thing, even for us as a church to think about, that as we think about ministry, oftentimes we can come up with plans and we can come up with awesome ideas and we can come up with good things, but very often as we think about innovation, it all has to do with what doors is God opening to us? What are the doors that are opening? And I would just encourage you as we even enter into this new year, just to ask this question, what door of ministry do you see God opening to you? And it might not be the same doors that have been opened to you in the past in your life. After 2020, with, with the new situation that we find ourselves in, and even, even if we are anticipating and expecting to get out and back to normal, it's still going to be some time. So the question I have for you is, what door is God opening for you, not three months from now, but today? What door is it? And I would imagine, and maybe it, like I would have never thought the door of, of online ministry would have been open to this church or to me that I would be doing this. I would have imagined that I'd be preaching to live people. And you are, of course, alive watching. But I, I wouldn't have thought this. This is a new door. And it means that we have to have different innovation and different strategies, different ideas. What does this mean? And so for you, maybe your door of ministry is more around you, that it's, it's your neighbors on each side. Maybe, and maybe you need to think differently about what's around you or what door. And I guess I, I don't want to answer the question for you about what door is open for you, but I do want to encourage you to reflect what door is open for you. When they come home, their main message when they give their report is that God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. People who you might not have expected responding positively to the gospel, that door had opened, and Paul and Barnabas were in the process of walking through that door. So the first thing about the report, it was optimistic. A door of faith had been opened. All right, so a door of faith is opened. Here's the second thing that I think they would have said about their trip and the report that they had given. 
Acts 13, verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, and they came to Perga. Well, actually, they landed in Italia, then they came to Perga. And then it says this, And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. All right. Here's the second thing that their report would have said. And this is where, again, for me, as I think about the book of Acts, and it's always further up, further in, we're always getting better. Like, here's a, here's a place where you see a road bump. And they would have said, some of our people left us. Some of our people left us. We were in the middle of this ministry. We were in the middle of walking through an open door. And one of our people, one of our key people left us. Now, it doesn't say why John Mark left. And I don't even know exactly what to think about John Mark. Um, but it does say that he left, and it does imply that it left a hole for them. Earlier in chapter 13, it says that John Mark is with them, which implies that he's doing a lot of the, of the work while Paul and Barnabas are teaching. But John Mark, whatever he does, his Barnabas wanting to include him on the second journey is going to cause a rift and a breakup between Paul and Barnabas. Now, later, John Mark will become very important to the Apostle Paul. We see that in 2 Timothy. And tradition shows that John Mark will form a strong connection with Peter and will eventually author the Gospel of Mark. So it's not like, it's not like, it's not like John Mark is a slouch. It's not like John Mark is, is, is not fit for ministry. But I wonder what this report would have sounded like. One of our people left us in the middle of the ministry. And I suppose it, it, we are in, the more I talk to people and different pastors at different churches, we see there is a huge shuffling of the deck of people in Orange County and churches and things of that nature. And whether people are watching online or not staying or whatever it is or not engaging, that, that there's a lot of things that are happening. And I, I suppose for us, for you and I, as we reflect on this particular location, our social location, as we think about what goes on on this first journey, is to ask the question, what do you do with people who you feel maybe have abandoned ship or maybe have abandoned the ministry? And I, I have... I have different thoughts now at, at this stage in my ministry career than I did maybe earlier on. I think I have a little bit more grace. I think it's interesting because Paul and Barnabas, they're going to have different ideas about this too. Like Barnabas is like, hey, that was just one time. Let's bring him along. Let's keep building into him. While Paul's going to be like, I need people who are reliable. I can't have that. And, and it's not like Barnabas and Paul, like one's right and one's wrong. They both just have different approaches. Paul gets more press going forward, but Barnabas does take John Mark on the second journey and go back to where he, he left. And I think it is interesting. I mean, John Mark, you think about John Mark, he's like, I got on this trip, and then the apostle, and then Paul, like, strikes this dude blind. That happens. That's what Jim preached on last week. He strikes this guy blind. Like, and then later on, Paul is going to get stoned. Like, they're going to gather around Paul, and they're going to throw rocks at him until they think he's dead. 
Like, I think that there is a, uh, something about John Mark and about people who are part of ministry that just say, hey, look, right now, I can't do it. It's too much. It wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And maybe we do. Maybe there is a sense of like, hey, we need reliable people. But maybe there's also a sense of, hey, we need to keep pouring in to people. So I don't know what your thoughts are about, and about people who've left Taft Avenue or people that, that are no longer part of this or people who have not done ministry or whatever it is. I would just encourage you as we reflect on this that um, there might not be one right answer on this. And then we need to kind of open our hearts to the idea about what is God doing because Barnabas will have an idea about John Mark and he'll continue to pour into them. Paul, Paul will, will kind of say, hey, you're not reliable, you're not part of this. But later on in Paul's ministry, you're going to see a reconciliation with him and John Mark. So all that to say, as they come back, what does this report sound like? It's God opened doors, but we also had some people leave. It's a sober report. It's accurate, but it's sober. All right, what else, does it, what else could this report have sounded like? And I think what it also could sound like is this idea that we went to different places. And that's not just to say that we went to different cities. Because we're going to see that when they go to different cities, when they go to Antioch, they go first to the synagogue, and this is going to be the pattern for the Apostle Paul from here on out, really from here on out in the book, that whenever Paul arrives in a city, the first place that he's going to go is he's going to go to a synagogue. Saturday, Sabbath, Torah reading, prophet reading, and that's what we see in Antioch. Look at 13, or sorry, 14, 14, second half of that verse. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So what does Paul do? So glad you asked, right? And I think this is one of the things that we, we see with the Apostle Paul, that as the Apostle Paul goes through and... Um, as we look down, I'm just going to go, um, sorry, I'm going to go down here. Jerusalem's down here, and this is the Holy Land. Obviously, this, this whole area up here is what is called diaspora, Greek-speaking Jewish synagogues. And there's going to be pilgrimages that take place. Actually, the Apostle Paul grew up right here, Tarsus, but he made pilgrimages and actually grew up down here in Jerusalem. But all these other areas are diaspora synagogues. And one of the things about diaspora synagogues is that if you're a leader of a diaspora synagogue and a rabbi that is trained in Jerusalem shows up, what are you going to do? Brother, brother, do you have a message for us? From Jerusalem, you studied under Gamaliel. Can you teach us something? And this, this, this is going to be one of the things that gets Paul in the door wherever he goes. We're going to find out, especially when we get to chapter 18, we're going to find out there's really two things that gets Paul's foot in the door, whatever town he goes to, is he's a Jerusalem-trained rabbi, which gives him access to the synagogue, but he's also a trained, a, a trained tradesman, a leather worker, a tent maker, which is going to get him into the marketplace. So he has these tools that get a foot in the door. 
And he shows up at the synagogue, and they're like, brother, do you have a message for us? He's all, as a matter of fact, I do. And he gives the message. And when he gives the message, and I think this is another important thing for us to note, Paul's not only going to do this in the synagogue, but he's also going to do it um, in the town squares, in the marketplace. But when he does it in each of these places, he's going to do it differently. And he's going to do it using the things that the people understand. So when he goes into the synagogue, if you read his message in the synagogue, he's going to start with the election of Israel, Egypt and the Exodus, David is king, And then he introduces Jesus in 1423 of this man's offspring, of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he has promised. But he doesn't get to Jesus without using things that the audience knows and understands. So going into the synagogue, it's all Abraham, election, exodus, David, Messiah. That's the language of the synagogue and that's what he uses. He goes on to say in verse 38, 1438, let it be known to you therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Again, using the things that they are familiar with to preach the gospel. Now we're gonna see initially this is well received, but up here in Antioch, which is where this is happening. By the way, Pisidian Antioch, um, a couple years ago I was able to go and I was able to read the sermon that Paul had to a group of our traveling, uh, uh, it was a traveling study tour, and we were actually able to go to Pisidian Antioch where they had just archaeologically dug up the first century synagogue, and so we're able to stand in this spot and read this sermon, the first sermon that is preached about Jesus outside of Israel in Pisidian Antioch, you can go there today and do that. That's actually, except for COVID, I I was going to have a trip and it got shut down, but hey, blessed are the flexible, right? The other beatitude. Um, All right, so initially well-received, but so well-received that the whole town comes out and then you start to get this jealousy from the synagogue leaders that all these Gentiles are coming to listen, and so they, they stir up trouble against Paul and Barnabas. They go from there, and they go here to Iconium. The city today is called Konya, from Iconium. And in 14.1, it says at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, some sided with the apostles. And so these two areas, what we're going to see, Antioch and Iconium, you get a positive response to the gospel. But you also have this division that literally the city is divided. Jews and Greeks are divided against them. Now, keep in mind, all of these churches... This is the region that we would call Galatia. And that the book of Galatians is written to these churches. And so a lot of this division that we see here in the book of Acts, we're going to see continued in the book of Galatians. All right, 
What is, we're getting a little bit off topic here, but back to this report, what did this report sound like? Um, God opened a door. Some people left, some of our people left. We went to the synagogue and got a positive response and a negative response, like it was mixed, it was mixed. But they would have also said, you know what, we all, you know what else we did? We went to a town and we didn't even go to the synagogue. We just gave the gospel, we went straight to the people and that's at Lystra, at the town of Lystra. Look at verse 14, 14, 14. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Saul, sorry, um, this is the wrong one. Oh, yeah. Um, verse 8, verse 8, 14, 8. At Lister, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. Lister is the only place where it doesn't mention the synagogue, that they don't go to the synagogue first. They just see a guy who's crippled. He's lame. He can't stand up. He can't use his feet. And so he's listening to Paul speaking. Paul looks at him and sees the faith that he had, that he could be made well. He says, stand up. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down with us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought out oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice to them with the crowds. They don't go to the synagogue, they heal a guy, and then all of a sudden, they're being hailed as gods. Now, one little, no extra charge for this little tidbit. In Lystra, there's actually, the poet Ovid actually um, recounts a story from this region where Zeus and Hermes actually do come down and introduce themselves to this couple who offers them hospitality and they save this, per, these, this couple from a flood in the region. And so the idea that Zeus and Hermes would come down as human likeness in this region is something that was deeply ingrained in this region. That's probably why they see this miracle and they're like, Zeus and Hermes are here. But you can imagine here, they don't go to the synagogue, they're not speaking Hebrew, they're not speaking Greek, it actually says they're speaking Laconian. And I suppose this is one of the things that, as they offer this report, they're like, look, Gentile ministry, people hear about Jesus and it's awesome and that's great, but there's a tremendous possibility of misunderstanding. Like, this is not the finest moment for the traveling preachers. Like, if you go out to preach the gospel and people come away thinking that you're God, <laughs> like, yeah, you could have been clearer. It could, you, could have done a, you could have been clearer about that. And this is, I think this is one of those places where it's a total learning curve for Paul and Barnabas. But look at, listen to what Paul says to this group who thinks that they are gods. In verse 14, when Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments, they rushed out in the crowd saying, why are you doing these things? We're, we're men, we're men just like you. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed the nations to walk away on their own ways, but he did not leave himself without testimony. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. 
And I think what we see when Paul was in the synagogue up here in Antioch and Iconium, it was all about the patriarchs, the election of Israel, the Exodus, David, Messiah. And now that Paul is in Lystra preaching to a crowd of pagans, it's the God of the universe has not left himself without testimony to you. He doesn't bring up Israel, David. He's not talking about things that they wouldn't understand. He's talking about the things that they understand. And I think this is important. And as Paul's giving this report, as Paul and Barnabas are giving this report, they say, God's opened a door. We had some people leave. We went to the synagogue and we preached, but we also went to the pagans and we preached. And it looked different. We had to use a different club out of the bag. We, you know, like... And this is, I think, an important thing in ministry as we think about our own role here at Taft Avenue in this community. We oftentimes think that preaching the gospel means, well, I've got to do this one thing and say this one thing. And the truth is, the way we need to preach the gospel is in terms that the hearers will understand. We don't just go hit play and then if I preach the gospel, everything must be fine and everything, I can use all the language that I know about and they should be able to understand and if they don't, well then, that's not what we see in the New Testament. They find the language that the people will understand and they put it in their language. I like to think about this like, it's like, ministry is like walking around like golfing. Anybody golf? I like to golf, I'm not very good at it. But when you golf, you have a bag of clubs. And depending on where you are on the course, you pull out a different club. Like when you're on the tee at a par five, you pull out the driver, right? Unless you can't control your driver, then you pull out your three iron and then you try to hit it straight. One way or another, you pull out the club that's appropriate for that spot. But if you're on the green and you've got a three-foot putt, you don't pull the driver out. You have a putter for that. You have a different club for a different spot. If you're in the bunker, you don't pull the driver out or the putter, you pull out the sand wedge. And I think as we in our community, as you with your neighbors, as you in this community, as you think about how do I preach the gospel, I think the first question you have to ask is, what do people need to hear? How will they understand this? And that's something that we see here as they give their report They would have said they would have never understood the Exodus story unless we offered all kinds of background. What they needed to hear was that there was a God who is above all other gods who loves them. And then all these other gods are vain things and they need to focus on the one true God. Eventually what we're going to see is this same crowd in Lystra that wants to offer them bull garland sacrifices eventually get turned against them and they actually corner Paul, throw rocks at him until they think he's dead. They stone him. They drag him out of the city. In verse 20 it says, but when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up, he entered the city and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. So we go here, down to Derbe. Eventually, they they work their way back through. And I wonder how Paul would have given that report. 
It says when they're on their way back, verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch. This is after Paul had had rocks thrown at him. I mean, you wonder what that would have been like for Paul. To have someone corner you and throw rocks at you until they thought you were dead. To be knocked unconscious by people throwing things at you. So much so that they thought you were dead and then they drug your lifeless body, your limp body out of the city. Like that, they don't teach that class in seminary. And that's not a class that any of us might ever take. But we do know that there are Christians throughout history and around the world today that deal with that very threat. When they come home to Antioch, they give a report. And as Paul comes back and as he's working their way through, Paul's message is somber. Look at 1428. I'm sorry, 14... Um, 1422 strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God that carries some weight from a guy who's got bruises and scratches on his face from rocks that had been thrown at him continue in faith tribulations await, appoint elders, and there's a need for encouragement. I think one line as we kind of wrap this up, as we think about what did this report sound like? God opened a door. One of our key members left. We had this mixed response in the synagogue. We had a really bad misunderstanding in Lystra. Paul got presumably killed but then was somehow raised back up. Then we went back and we encouraged everybody. It says in 1428, 1427, when they arrived, they gathered the church together. They declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. I think the New American Standard says they remained a long time with the disciples. How long did they remain? I mean, the, even this journey, this journey would have taken a few months. We read about it in two chapters. I'm doing a 30-minute sermon on it. You think about months of what this looked like, and then, then it says they remained with the disciples for a long time. How long did Paul and Barnabas have to stay in Antioch before they went out on the second journey? Gosh, I don't know, maybe long enough for them to be encouraged again, maybe long enough for Paul not to close his eyes and see rocks flying at him? Like, how long did it take for that, the, the joy and trauma of that trip to sink in? And to make peace with it. I think sometimes we forget that Paul is human. That at the end of this trip, that they might have been a little weary. 
maybe even discouraged, maybe at least a little bit emotionally tired. I don't know if you're emotionally tired at the end of 2020. I certainly was. After the Christmas Eve service, I was like, I've got, I, gotta, I, gotta go, I gotta go down. I gotta go in the basement for a while. Like, I gotta reflect. And for me, like, one of the ways that I regain and recharge my batteries is I reflect. And part of that is personal stock, personal goals, whether you want to call, uh, uh, whether you want to talk about resolutions or things like that, these are ways that I kind of order my, my world, my mind. What's gone on in this? What's the path forward? What has happened? And I don't know where you're at in terms of how emotionally tired you might have been. Hopefully you, you, you got a chance to be encouraged while you were at home at the holidays, but now we're entering into a next, the next season. And if you've not kind of emotionally recharged those batteries, and this is, one, this is an important thing for ministry as well, as you think about ministry, and I've seen friends that just were hard chargers, and they were just like, I don't need a rest, I'm just going to go for it. And there are plenty of churches out there that will just press and push their ministers just to go, 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 but there are seasons and rhythms of life and ministry. And even as we think about, we changed our fiscal year, and it produces a different rhythm of ministry for us. And January is going to be a time where we can invest in staff, where we can invest, do some elder training and reflection, and some staff training and reflection, some personal goal setting, evaluating where we are as a church. These are important times. They might not be times where we put you know, there are times where we put our foot to the floor in ministry on the pedal, and there are other times where we let up and we take stock. And I think this is a really interesting passage because in the, while they're on the journey, the foot, the pedal is to the metal, and they are going, 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 going. But when they come back, they give a report, and they stay for a long time. And I think this is an important thing for us to note is that ministry is, is a work that happens in seasons. There are seasons of planting. There are seasons of cultivation. There are seasons of harvest. But we have to recognize that those seasons take their toll and that we have to find ourselves in a healthy place as we continue to move out in ministry. And you guys at home as you think about where you're at, and as you think about what kind of open doors has God put in my life, what is an open door of ministry? To ask the question, okay, am I ready to walk through that door? Now, if that door is there, I would encourage you, walk, go for it. I think one of the things we see here is that the Holy Spirit, is that Paul and Barnabas, look, you've got your season, now you're going to rest and we're going to send you back out, but I want you to rest now that you're in a season of rest. And I don't know what it is for you. Maybe you've been in a season of rest and now it's time to get going. Maybe you've been pushing hard and now it's a time to do a little reflection to get ready for the next season. Whatever it is, I would encourage you just to have that conversation with the Lord and to ask God, what do you have for me? If I'm not ready, if I'm hesitant, if I'm not ready to take a risk in ministry, because I got news for you, right now, all ministry is a little bit of a risk. I mean, even just talking to someone is a risk these days, right? Do you have a mask on? Are you six feet apart? Can I do this? Like, going online, that's a little bit of a risk. Like, but what, what is it and what door of ministry is God opening? And are you ready to walk through it? 
I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged. I think that this season, this upcoming season, we as a church, we need to be pushed in innovation. And I've been really encouraged that as we've been pushed in innovation, that we've, we've answered the call. We've, we've answered the bell. And we're, we're doing this. And we want to continue to be innovative. But it does take some time and energy and a toll. And I would encourage you at home to think, what sort of ministry does God have for me in this season? What, ba- what club in the bag is God asking me to pull out during this time? Maybe it is learning a new language, so to speak, so you can talk to your neighbor. What interests them? How can the gospel come into their life through you in a way that they will understand? When we pray, when we pray and let's bow our heads and let's ask God to reveal that to us. Father, we are grateful for this opportunity to come to you. We're grateful that you would see us faithful to give opportunity to open a door of ministry. Father, we ask that you would show us, that you would guide us, the same way that you guided Paul and Barnabas, the same way that you guided Peter, the same way that you guided your son. We ask, Father, that you would make it clear what are the open doors. Help us to know just the state of our own souls as we enter into this work? Are we ready? Father, for those that are weary among us, I pray that you would encourage them and give them the type of time and experience that they need to regather so they can go out on a second journey, so to speak. Father, we do pray for our church. We pray for those who are not well. We ask for your healing hand. We ask for your presence to be clear to them. We ask, Father, we pray for the Ramlos as they are going down to Colonet, Mexico to give the Christmas gifts that have been gathered. Father, we pray for safety for them. And we pray, Father, for our church. Show us the path forward, Father. We love you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.